brother started listening, which is great. Oh, that's cute. Hi, Paul. Yeah. Hi, Paul. What up? He's not really a crime guy, but he's an us guy. He says that he listens uh, to basically like keep up with you and me, which I think is really sweet. Oh, that's what Amber said. Oh, Amber. Hi, Amber. <laughs> Hi, listeners. Amber Amber or Paco is um the person who designed our logo. Hi. Yeah, and she's a wonderful person. We love her. Yeah, Merry Christmas. And to Hi. Alex. Alex listens. I don't know. I, we're just doing Christmas shout outs, I guess. I guess so. I mean, okay. thanks to everybody that listens to us. We should probably do an introduction now. Welcome to Midwretched, friends. Welcome to Midwretched and happy holidays. We are indeed back from our weeks of illness and mystery fatigue. I don't yes. know. Yes. We're recording this on the first night of Hanukkah. <gasps> happy Hanukkah. Is today the first night of Hanukkah? It is. Ah. Yeah. yeah. Soon it shall be the solstice day. These are good times. These are good times. I know the solstice is the 21st because it's my sister's birthday. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, a happy holiday to all, whatever that holiday is for you. Yay. Happy holidays. We're glad that you're here. Indeed. Yeah. We hope you're listening to this maybe on a drive to visit your family. Yes. Or a drive to run the fuck away from them. Either way. Either way. Totally fine. Yep. Christmas, friends miss, alones yes. miss. We love a good alones miss. A <laughs> girl. <laughs> Hanukkah, alonica. I don't know. <laughs> I would just. <laughs> alonica sounds awesome. <laughs> Seven days of being completely alone. <laughs> uh, eight. Uh... <laughs> that would be fabulous. Eight fabulous nights of aloneness. Oh, God. Anyway, friends, so obviously we have our own holiday angst, <laughs> but we are here today to, you know, talk through a story. Yeah. All right. I was thinking that we should do an updates episode soon. I don't know. There's been so many true crime updates in general. Yeah. I don't know if any of my cases have updates, but I guess I can look. A couple of mine do. I'd like to give mm-hmm. some updates, too. I am Tommy, and you are? Mick. And we are here to tell you a story. Well, Tommy's going to tell you a true crime story. I'm going to drink this hot toddy out of my Little Mermaid cup. Perfect. I love that mug. It's such a very, like, comforting mug. It's got a great hand feel. It does, right? It is. Yeah. It just. It's always the one I reach for when I'm at your house. (laughs) And I'm sorry, because I know you also love it. (laughs) It, for coffee, it's not the best because it's so big. My coffee is cold by the time I get to the bottom. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. No, it just, it feels so good, though. It, it, it is. It's a very comforting mug. It's a good one. Anyway, should we get started? We should totally get started. We have rambled and tan- tangented. tangented. We have. Um, and tomorrow's, it's a school night, so hmm. I'm going to have to get myself together. All right. Let's get ourselves together. What are okay. you going to talk to us about today? So I'm going to talk to you about a case that is a missing persons case, and it is unclear actually right now if it is a true crime story mm-hmm. or if it is a story of an accidental disappearance. But we're going to talk through kind of all the possibilities with that. We're going to be talking through the disappearances of Diamond Bynum and King Walker from Gary, Indiana. Ah, uh, Gary. Are we going to talk about Gary and how Gary became to be? I have many pages about Gary <laughs> that we are going to talk through. Absolutely. <laughs> Because it's a, it's a really, really, really important factor in the circumstances surrounding this dis- these disappearances. So yeah. we have to talk about the environment here. Um, 
and a couple of other kind of circumstances around this that make it a particularly unique and a particularly challenging missing persons case. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take you to July 25th, 2015. It was a mellow and family-oriented day. It was a Saturday. Um, And honestly, that's how most days were for two-year-old King Walker and his aunt, 21-year-old Diamond Bynum. Uh, So the two were at home on Matthew Street in Gary, Indiana, with Diamond's stepmom, Suzanne. And we'll talk a lot about the area later. There's kind of a main drag that is a a heavy road that they live off of. And then Matthew's is a little side street. They live not very far down from that larger intersection. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a small home, cute little house. uh, And it's kind of a family hub for for like a pretty decent sized extended family. So Diamond uh, lived with her dad, Eugene, and her stepmother, Suzanne. Um, King didn't live there full time, but uh, his sister would attend college classes in Chicago. So often she would drop King off for like overnights with his grandparents at the home in Gary. So King's mom's name is Ariana. That's Diamond's sister. Diamond and Ariana's mom, LaShawn Walker, did not live with them, but uh, lived nearby. So they're a pretty involved, blended family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they all kind of worked it seemed to me like worked really well together, um, kind of Everybody as a family. Everybody picking up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and in the face of these disappearances, too, kind of really just banded together. It's touching to see kind of the ways that these this family has tried to kind of stay banded together, keep this case in, you know, media attention, all that stuff, mm-hmm. which I just really always admire in a blended family. Honestly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this was a Saturday morning, like I said, the night before Ariana had dropped King off uh, because she had morning classes in Chicago. So um, King would be there for the day and then she would pick him up presumably that evening, that uh, Saturday evening. Eugene uh, was off to work that morning. So it was King and Diamond at home with Suzanne. Uh, the family had just recently moved to Gary, actually. So we're in mid uh, late July right now. They moved to Gary in February from Hammond, Indiana which is just a town over, so not far. But they actually moved to Gary to be closer to their kind of entire extended family. So even that like 20, 25 minute difference was important to them to close that gap. Yeah, yeah. I I like families like these where they really embrace the whole takes a village to raise a kid. And they're just like, yeah, we are the village. Like, let's be together. Yeah, totally. And they really did that. So, you know, everybody was kind of adjusting to the move. But I would say that the adjustment was definitely a particular challenge for Diamond. Diamond has Prader-Willi syndrome. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail Prader-Willi. later. That is not what Mayo Clinic says. That is what everyone I've ever spoken to and have tested for it has called it Prader-Willi. Well, they can talk to the Mayo Clinic because they say Prader-Willi. Well, they're so just being fancy. They're just being the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, fancy. Right. Would you pray? Would you prefer that I say Prater Willie? Nah, either way. Okay, I will say it because you. I mean, you're going to correct me the entire time anyway. I so. will not. You say it the proper way because then we're probably going to get people that comment are like, they're like, no, Mick is wrong. She doesn't know it's Prada Willie, and I'm like, whatever. <laughs> you know, I can't pronounce things anyway. I mean, tomato, tomato, right? Either way, Prater Willie or Prater Willie syndrome. Uh, we're going to talk again a little bit more later about just kind of the the entire scope of that um, for her. 
But the two kind of primary characteristics that seemed like the biggest part of her life were some cognitive impairments. She was said to have the cognition of a five to seven year old, uh, is what her family would say. And also the hallmark feature of Prouderville is an insatiable appetite. Mm-hmm. More accurately, the inability to feel fullness. Yes. So um, there's a drive to just always be eating. A very, very strong drive, like Mm -hmm. an aggressive drive in some folks. Yes. To be eating. Yeah. Yeah. And and for some people, it will lead to eating things that are not food. Mm -hmm. It will lead to, uh, very commonly, it leads to like eating out of garbage cans or like things you should not be eating, things that are old or spoiled. Mm -hmm. Just not having um, a, a discriminating palate at all because you just don't know that you're full, right? So Diamond, you know, had Prouderville and, and had that those particular challenges. Um, but again, like the family was just extremely committed to her happiness and her safety and her care. So, you know, it was also kind of important to keep them centralized because everybody was kind of pitching in with mm-hmm. with Diamond and also with King because he's two and yeah. two year olds are a lot. So <laughs> um, she says with a knowing face. Yes. So, you know, the family is, I just really adore this family. I feel like they really kind of are the example of taking challenging circumstances and just really kind of rising above them in many ways, you know, and really just kind of going the extra mile to to help Diamond have like a really joyful, delightful life. Mm-hmm. She loved to help with household stuff. She liked to cook. She loved to help take care of King. Um, She did often help taking care of King, like changing his diapers and cooking for him and cleaning up after him and stuff like that. She was never actually responsible for him in any real way. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they would kind of like let her feel like she was, you know. Yeah. Somebody was always watching. Somebody was always like ready to kind of step in. Mm -hmm. But they might kind of like step out of the room or kind of step into a doorway and like let her change a diaper, do these types of things. Like, hey, take care of King while we go make dinner or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I got the sense that that was like very important to to the family was like helping Diamond like reach the potential of her independentness. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, independence. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> it's been a long week. Yeah. But they they really wanted her to to have as full a life as as she can have. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is it is very full, right? Like she's got a loving family. She's got stuff to do. She, uh, at the time of her disappearance, she was really into all things girly. (laughs) She, um, I believe it was an interview with her grandmother um, or her mom, LaShawn Walker, um, talked about how she like just loved a fresh mani-pedi and that was like her favorite thing in the world. Uh, Makeup, fun clothes, like she just loved all of that stuff. How old Um, was she again? 21. 21. 21. Um, She loves her family and uh, they would often like kind of treat her to her favorite food, which was cheeseburgers. Mm. And they just they loved her. King, obviously, there's a little bit less information about because he's two. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he doesn't have a a full portfolio of a life to to totally dive into. But Mm -hmm. he was a very exuberant, bright two year old. His favorite Mm -hmm. activity was playing chase. Like running around and wanting somebody to catch him. <laughs> he was pretty freshly too by summer. 
okay. uh, of 2015. He would have, yeah, like two and two months. He was born in May. So he's, he's barely two, but he was said to have like a lot of words for a kid that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like bright, exuberant, physical, I'm fun, looking at a picture fun little of him. guy. He is a cutie. He's a beautiful child. He's so cute. Oh, that little mischievous smile. Yeah, it's it's exactly the vibe that I get. Just like everything <laughs> that they said about him was, you know, so like he's going to be that kid that just like runs you ragged, but in the most fun way possible, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, there are a lot of factors that make this case particularly challenging as a missing persons case. Uh, and the two key ones, I think, are Gary, Indiana. And Prader-Willi syndrome. Yeah. Those are the two key factors that complicate this infinitely. Um, so we're going to talk about Gary first. <laughs> okay. Will you tell me your feelings, impressions of Gary? I feel like everybody in the upper Midwest has something to say about Gary. Um, I know more than the average person about Gary because I'm curious about how these towns come to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the general impression people get of Gary is it's scary. It's a very depressed town. There's a lot of crime there. Um, it's a very kind of almost in certain places has very ghost town vibes, like kind of urban ghost town feel. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that comes from the history of Gary and how it came to be that way. Yes. The Jacksons are from Gary. The Music Man is from Gary. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, Gary was built as a company town. Mm-hmm. It was a steel workers town, and I forget exactly the corporation that built it. Oh, it's U.S. Steel. I mean, it's U.S. Steel. Okay, massive. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was built as a company town for essentially like work for U.S. Steel, and here are the homes you will live in, and you will all have jobs, and here is the town that your wives and children will go to, and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And then when U.S. Steel kind of pieced out, they literally just abandoned everybody there. They took the entire economy with it. Yes. So let me give you let me give a bit of a deeper dive there. But that's definitely the that's the broad strokes of it. And really, I think the the thing I just want to always keep in mind is like these places have these reputations. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you'll hear people. So I live um, a little bit less than an hour from Gary, about yeah. 50 minutes, I would say. And. You get the like, oh, you should never go to Gary mm-hmm. or like, oh, I hate driving through Gary or I don't feel safe driving in Gary. I don't mm-hmm. feel comfortable. All that type of stuff. Right. Yeah. So it's it's one of those places that people fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, but and so it makes it easy to forget that families live in Gary. People live oh, yeah. in Gary. Right. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that kind of like. I'm not going to call it fear-mongering because Gary is a tough place. We're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But um, sometimes I think that that fear can be a little unfair. Yeah, I would would agree with that. Yeah. So let's get into it. Gary is notorious, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And like you kind of alluded to, the story of Gary is one that we see echoed across the entire Rust Belt, right? A formerly booming center of industry, you know, a city with a meteoric rise and a catastrophic fall. Yep. Right. A tale as old as time in the Midwest. <laughs> it's a mini Detroit in many ways. It is. I, I have that parallel in my notes, too. Um, <laughs> so geographically, Gary is like if you can imagine Lake Michigan, how it kind of like dips down. Yep. Gary is like tucked in that little cup of the Lake Michigan. <laughs> Thank 
you so much. I kind of visualize it as like you're you're cupping you're cupping something, and Gary's in your cup, like it's just at the bottom, and so it's on the water. It is Indiana that's considered to be Chicago land. So at that point, you're like, I think probably twenty to twenty five minutes from the Illinois border. Yeah. And the Illinois border at that point is Chicago. You cross over to Indiana and you are in the city of Chicago. Yep. So, you know, it's the home of what was at its construction, the largest steel mill in the entire world. Mm-hmm. It is still the largest one in the U.S., but in the world, uh, at the time that it was built, it was the largest one in the world. I will say it's the largest one in, like, square footage, mm-hmm. not the largest one in employment or production. So I don't want that to be misleading. We're getting um, pedantic now. <laughs> yes. Well, we never get pedantic. Um, it's <laughs> not this podcast. Really. <laughs> not this podcast. Not you. <laughs> so, you know, the city was really built around the steel mill, like you said. It was mm-hmm. built as a company town, you know, neighborhoods constructed very much, you know, to to house families that work for, you know, U.S. Steel. So you don't see infrastructure otherwise. That is the core problem. Um, Gary's formative year saw a huge influx of immigrants, um, largely from Eastern Europe. Uh, in 1920, about 30% of the population was uh, born outside of the U.S. And of the remaining 70%, another 30% had one, at least one parent who was born outside of the U.S. So mm-hmm. everybody, you know, a full 60% of the population was either immigrant or first generation. Kind of apart from that, there was also a huge influx of African-American migrants from the South during the Great Migration, which saw, you know, huge, uh, about 50% of all African-Americans living in the South moved in mass to uh, largely the Midwest and kind of the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. So, uh, and we call that the Great Migration in history. So um, Gary was definitely a, a premier town for either of those groups of people to move into. And so when it was new and booming, it was very diverse, prosperous city. The Jackson family, like you said, came from Gary. <laughs> it has a, a very impressive number of historic places if you look at its historic register. It does, um, yeah. But all the good things come to an end in the 1960s. Yeah, well. <laughs> 60s were a complex time. Yeah, let's delete that comment. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to erase that. Boop. (laughs) We'll just say, then the 1960s came. And during the 60s, the steel industry became international, which basically caused the beginning of the end for Gary and caused a a major decline in its working population. At its height, the working population in Gary was about 30,000. And that would decrease between the 1960s and 1990. That number would go down to 6,000 people. And most recent counts, it's about 5,000. That's a huge decrease in workers. Yeah. 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 Racial tensions also rose in these decades. I would say there were always racial tensions in Gary. But when the economic situation starts to cave in, Mm -hmm. those tensions tend to, you know, exponentially increase. The racial tensions in those Rust Belt towns are really interesting because in a lot of ways, like a lot of the industry was a little bit of an equalizer in terms Mm -hmm. of income. And that increased racial tension because white people didn't like that. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think, was a huge part of what's interesting about Gary is that you don't 
actually find it to be like historically all that redlined. Mm-hmm. Not nearly as much as some of its neighbors, for example, South Bend. Or Chicago. Um, right. Detroit. Like the, yep. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were these these major racial tensions that, you know, kind of were always there because of that equalization and, and white people resenting it. And then the economic situations just lit that tension on fire. Mm-hmm. In 1967, the first black mayor was elected in Gary, Richard Hatcher. And so even though it was kind of an equalizer in the sense that everyone was making like relatively similar incomes, there were very specifically white areas of town mm-hmm. and very specifically black areas of town, mostly the um, midtown neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And Richard Hatcher really encouraged people to move into other areas of the city. He was very interested in just really uplifting his community, obviously, particularly his African-American constituents because they were the ones that needed uplifting in the 1960s right Mm -hmm. Uh, and always so he really encouraged them to move into other areas of the city which ignited those tensions further and he actually i thought this was really interesting he hosted the first national black political convention in gary oh interesting yeah he's a cool dude so you know tensions really burbled up basically between a white population that began to feel marginal you know, a black community seeking its betterment and the ever creeping failure of the steel industry. All of those things kind of working together to make it a very, very like kind of a powder keg place to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So people did start to leave mostly white people taking Gary from a population uh, at its peak of about 100,000 to now a little bit over 60,000. The other thing, you know, that comes with any kind of anytime there's a population drain, Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a decrease in resources and infrastructure. And tax income and all of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'll say about that that distinguishes a Gary from someplace like Detroit is that, you know, you get that similar structure, even at South Bend, uh, because South Bend was also an industry town. But Gary really only had U.S. steel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas Detroit had the auto industry, but also a few other things going on. Uh, same with South Bend where there was just enough other infrastructure, just enough other resources to keep it from going into the full decline that Gary did. There was still culture. There was still university. There was still, Mm -hmm. like, there was a lot of arts in Detroit and, you know, and other things kind of keeping it going. And, yeah, Gary never had any of that. No, Gary really, I think it it lives and dies by the steel industry in a lot of ways. Um, So, you know, the... The resources are drained. People are leaving. Uh, This huge population decrease comes uh, with it a huge percentage of abandoned structures. Mm -hmm. There are an estimated 13,000 homes and buildings that are currently abandoned in Gary. That is somewhere around 30% of all structures in that city. Mm -hmm. So a full third of the structures in Gary, Indiana are abandoned. That's just dangerous on so many levels. Yes. And so, you know, kind of like we've been saying, like the booming economy leaves and Mm -hmm. so settles in the resentments that take its place. Mm -hmm. And we often see these as a result in these cities, right? Increased levels of poverty leads to an increased level in crime. Historical segregation and intergenerational trauma leads to huge disparities in access to resources, right? And that comes especially compared to other areas in the state and in Chicagoland as well. Mm. So, you know, it's not like the entire Chicagoland area is like Mayberry, but (laughs) 
even another like very much like working class town, let's say, for example, East Chicago or Hammond still have, I think, a degree of infrastructure that someplace like Gary just didn't have. Right. And Gary's in a weird place because it's just far enough that it's not a commuter town either. That's true, too. Yeah. Other things in, in Gary that I think are really important to note is that they have closed a major number of schools. Mm-hmm. So people don't have necessarily access to their neighborhood schools anymore. Mm. Those structures are standing abandoned as well. So huge schools abandoned, you know, kids stuffed into under-resourced schools, the ones that are remaining across town. It's amazing to see how quickly buildings can go into disrepair when they are abandoned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the areas around them as well. You have like urban fields, Mm -hmm. roads in tremendous disrepair, buildings that very, very quickly become very dangerous places to be Mm -hmm. um, structurally. So when we talk about crime in Gary, uh, Gary is in the 92nd percentile for crime rates in the country. Yep. And police and community relations have always been problematic. In 2008, the city's police chief was convicted of excessive force and abuse of authority. He actually died in prison. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. While, while serving time for, for excessive force and abuse of authority. Uh, his name is Thomas Houston. So, you know, you don't have this great sense of community policing either. You've got this major tension between the police force and the citizenry. Um You know, I'll say all that. There have also always been revitalization attempts, right? There are people that feel strongly about their hometown. There are people that want it to be better, that want to do that work, um, and that kind of hold that hope. But it's also not the easiest place to live, right? Yeah. So, you know, I want to always keep in mind and recognize that there are real people that live in places like Gary, Indiana, Mm -hmm. that it's not this, like, legendary big bad that it's like funny to be afraid of. This just like really sticks in my craw. Because I think at the end of the day, when you're laughing about being afraid of someplace, really you're belittling people of color. And I'm not about that. Yeah. Honestly. And it's, it's, uh, the, the Gary jokes have become like, if you're not from the Midwest, if you're not from like the Indiana, Chicago land area, you probably don't hear them, but they are constant. Yeah. And it's, they're constant and they kind of come with this tone that like makes you think that people don't believe that actual people live there. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Or that good people live there. Mm, Yeah. And that really bugs me. Like one thing I'll say, and this, I think becomes relevant in a way to the story is that like having grown up in a very high crime city like Detroit, Mm -hmm. uh, as I have, and some pretty high crime neighborhoods within the city, um, there are these like high rates of crime. But what people don't tend to want to talk about is the fact that like, if you are not already directly involved with the kind of bad things that happen in a place, Mm -hmm. people aren't coming after you. Like, oh, yeah. I have this conversation about Chicago constantly. It's like, oh, well, Chicago's dangerous and you never know. You can go down the wrong street and you get shot. I'm like, that's really not how it works. No. In any way, shape, or form. No. You might. Basically, like, the ethos that was always, like, around when I grew up was, like, you mind your own business. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah. Right? 
Um, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. My brother was held up at gunpoint at a point, but far and away, like even in, even though there is this high crime rate, I do think it's important to acknowledge that that doesn't mean that every person in this place is going to be a victim of a crime, mm-hmm. right? Very often you see the same crimes perpetuated amidst the same kind of population of people, right? Mm-hmm. That are committing mm-hmm. these crimes kind of against each other repeatedly, right? Yeah. That kind of creates those numbers. What frustrates me the most about that is, I mean, then when you talk about the crimes that do occur, people are like, well, what did you expect? It was scary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's my soapbox. But really what that comes down to is real people live in Gary. And making fun of Gary is in my book not that funny. Sorry. It doesn't work for me. Gary's Um, a real town with real people. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings me back to the Bynums. The Bynums are a real family living a real life in a real place. Right. Gary is not this like boogeyman figment of your imagination. It's a real place. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had their cozy little bungalow on Matthews Street. And that was their home base. Nice. Yeah. So like a really nice family that lived together. Yeah. They they really are. So I'm going to take us back to that morning in July. Uh, Like I said, it's July 25th, 2015. Um, Susie and Diamond and King uh, woke up. They started their date about six o'clock in the morning, which is not uncommon if you have a two year old around. Um, Sounds terrible. (laughs) It's it's tough. Um, So the day started at six. Um, They had like a very normal morning. Uh, Suzanne. Her habit was to get King and Diamond kind of bathed in the morning. So like baths in the morning, kind of leisurely breakfast. Sounds like a really nice way to start a Saturday, to be honest. Um, They get Eugene off to work and everything. By about mid-morning, they often go down for a nap. Mm -hmm. So um, Diamond and King laid down for their nap at about 10.20, 10.25. And Suzanne laid down with them. And they all kind of dozed off. When Suzanne woke up at about 11 o'clock, Diamond and King were not there. She panicked at first, mm-hmm. but didn't immediately go to, like, call 911 or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when they lived in Hammond, and we'll kind of talk more about this a little bit later. When they lived in Hammond, Diamond had a very good sense of her neighborhood and did go on, like, short neighborhood walks and things like that. She could not quite manage, like, navigating a place that she didn't previously know. Mm-hmm. So they had not built that habit up with her in Gary quite yet. Um, but the thought did occur to Suzanne. Maybe she took King for a little walk. Um, okay. So, you know, she starts to peek out of the house, kind of looks around, looks around, looks around. Um, and they are not anywhere to be seen in either direction away from the house. So... She calls Eugene and says, I can't find Diamond and King. They're not here. I need you to leave work and come and help me. So Eugene leaves work. While he's driving home from work, he does, you know, obviously he keeps his eyes peeled while he's driving. He's looking down streets. He's, I got the sense he was kind of like snaking up and down Mm -hmm. some of the streets in the neighborhood. Like I said, there's kind of like a main drag um, that runs east-west. And then Matthews and other side streets kind of run north-south kind of Mm -hmm. off of that major drag so he was kind of like winding around and like seeing what he could see like we alluded to diamond did have some challenges with crater willie so you know she had cognitive impairments um 
and like I said, the family kind of described like five to seven year old level of cognition. She also had some pretty distinctive physical characteristics as a result that are, are pretty important to talk about as well. She mm-hmm. was uh, very short in stature, about four foot eight. And at the time of her disappearance, weighed about 238 pounds mm-hmm. um, because weight management with Prater Billy is really, really hard. Yeah, um, there's a lot of... Uh, with Prater Willie is a lot of uh, like hormonal issues, growth mm-hmm. impairments. So they tend to be very short in statue, very low muscle tone, and yeah, a lot of a lot of weight issues kind of surrounded. Mm-hmm. She also walked with a limp um, and carried her arm very stiffly. She would often kind of have like one arm bent. So the thought was that she probably wasn't going to get that far, particularly with a two year old in tow. It would be hard to make a lot of distance, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of facing those particular challenges. Um, So it was surprising that they weren't able to see her within a couple of blocks of the house. But how long was the nap? Like, how long was Susie down for? They went down at 1020 and she was up at 11. Oh, so not long at all. Okay, not long at all. So within that bracket, we don't know precisely when they walked out of the, the door. But I would just kind of surmise like, you know, how long does it take you after you lay down for a nap to be in like a deep enough sleep that you wouldn't notice that? 10, 15 minutes? Yeah. If we can imagine that they probably left the house, say 1045, 1050. Yeah. So there's no way that they were getting very far at all. No, you wouldn't think, right? But as much as Eugene tried to find them, like on his drive home, they were nowhere to be seen. Um, at all and again the two would cut a pretty distinct figure Mm -hmm. and so the the tough thing too is that like in their home neighborhood like I said in Hammond Diamond knew the neighborhood really well and the neighbors also knew her Mm -hmm. so if she was lost or just like struggling if she was tired or fatigued or whatever her neighbors would see her and know her And, you know, get her sit down, get her to rest a little bit, help her find her way back home. And they just hadn't quite established that in Gary yet. So it didn't have quite the same vibe for them quite yet. So, again, like I just want to keep in mind that the context of both Diamond's health concerns as well as Gary kind of working together to make this a really challenging situation. Yeah. 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 So, you know, uh, Eugene gets home and he and Suzanne call the police. The police responded immediately. Right away, the pair were considered to be endangered missing because of King's age and Diamond's Prater Willie. So police combed the area. They did kind of bring out as many of their people as they could. They were pretty fastidious about getting into like the brush. It's like the, you know, they had this kind of little bungle on Matthew Street Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that just looking at like the the um, Google Maps and stuff and what I remember about driving in this area, I would say that the street probably kept the same number as Gary as a whole, probably about 30-ish percent abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a lot of urban fields, a lot of, of brush and kind of overgrown stuff, right? Yeah. I have it on uh I have it up on Google's Maps and I don't know where they lived on Matthew Street, but there is also a big park right by them. Yes, 529 Matthew Street. We're going to talk about the park in a minute. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the park does come up. The park is really pretty. Um, I drove this area a couple weeks ago when I decided to do this case um, just because I wanted to kind of get a sense of, like, everything that we were looking at. So 
You know we can't help but look at maps. Yeah, no. Yeah, so Fifth Avenue is the big street that kind of runs just north of the home. So, and it is a pretty short street. Like south of Fifth Avenue, which turns into US 20, which Mm -hmm. I've taken to get home. And that's kind of how I ended up in this area (laughs) at one point. And then it ends in this park, which is just a couple of blocks down. It's about 1,500 feet down at the end of their street. So police are all over this area, but they're also kind of looking up and down Fifth Avenue. The tough thing about Gary is that the businesses up and along Fifth Avenue, there are some businesses, but there were not any working surveillance images Mm. that they could have gotten. So that was that was tough. So, you know, they're, they're searching, they are looking, and then news broke of the disappearance. When oh, that news broke... Wow. Huh? So I was just... Sorry, I was Google Maps things and I just dropped my little person on there and there is like just a lot of overgrowth and a lot of overbrush. It's a lot, yeah. From some of these abandoned houses. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, it's okay, especially as you kind of get down towards that park. Mm-hmm. You'll see a lot more of that. So... You know, news did break of the disappearance. It was on the on the news. I remember seeing it on my news, all over my Facebook feed, all that stuff. So some tips came forward, and uh, some of them were actually really promising. Uh, I won't say a lot of tips came forward. I described mm-hmm. it in my notes as a scant amount of tips. Okay. One of the initial ones was very, very promising because we knew that Diamond loved cheeseburgers. It was her favorite food. Mm-hmm. And employees at a local McDonald's called in a tip that they had seen Diamond and King at their McDonald's. Those employees were insistent that they were both there, that Diamond ordered food and was served and neither looked distressed or upset. Okay. Unfortunately, you know, they, the report of the sighting was in retrospect, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't know at the time that they were looking at two missing people. Yeah. So they didn't make a particular note of the time necessarily. Um, obviously, they could narrow it down to like who was on shift, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they weren't able to say like, okay, at 12.08, you know. And they didn't make note of where they went after they left, like which direction that they, yeah. you know, that they would have made. Because they didn't know they were looking at missing people. Yeah, so you, it's just another like girl and a little kid. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but again, the pair are pretty distinctive. So they definitely stuck in in the memory of the people that worked at this McDonald's. This McDonald's is uh, a little bit over two miles from the Bynum house. Um, it Google Maps says it's a 43-minute walk. If you are walking with a toddler, <laughs> anytime you're walking with a toddler, you have to add like 50% time to your walk. And then I also imagine like also walking with a limp probably adds some time to that as well. Mm-hmm. So on foot, I doubt they would have made it to that. This is my personal conjecture. This is obviously not fact, but I could not imagine them making it to that McDonald's in less than an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even if they went straight there. And mm-hmm. again, given a two-year-old, and Diamond's kind of cognitive skills, who knows if how, like, roundabout of a route they were able to take. Yeah, one thing that, to my mind, gives this tip a lot of credibility is just, like, thinking about what the family said about, like, how Diamond would navigate her neighborhood in Hammond, which mm-hmm. was very much, like, thinking about it, like, as a grid and in a very linear way. 
Um, the McDonald's that they were seen at uh, reportedly is basically just one turn from their house. So you yep. would head north on Matthew Street, hang a right, there's the McDonald's down the road. 2.2 miles. Yeah. yeah. So assuming that Diamond didn't have like a great degree of a sense of that distance, but okay, she knew yeah. it was just a singular turn, mm-hmm. I could see, I wouldn't be surprised if she thought, let's go get some cheeseburgers. It's only, we know where to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And not necessarily thinking, oh, this is going to take me an hour and a half to get to. So also, so like we talked about with Prater Willie, there's a lot of that like kind of like insatiable hunger drive and things like that. Like a lot of internal interoceptive skills don't work. They also don't get fevers. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of families then will keep cabinets empty or keep cabinets and refrigerators locked. Mm-hmm. So if she was having that drive for hunger, then it's really reasonable that she would get up and walk. Yeah, yeah. And everything I read about that drive, like, you couldn't overstate it, in my understanding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to me, this tip seemed very credible. The police felt the same way, but unfortunately, there wasn't that much that they could do with it. There was not surveillance at that McDonald's in the lobby. Mm -hmm. There is. I've been to this McDonald's before. (laughs) Um, And... When I looked up to remember it and I drove back by it, there is a camera at the drive-thru. Okay. Don't know if it's functional. Um, they also forgot my fries. But <laughs> I did not I did not see a camera outside of it aside from the drive-thru. So, you know, I think there there was kind of this initial like, oh, like wasn't there a camera at the McDonald's? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know. A lot of these places, if they ever did have cameras, they might have stopped working and they didn't have the money to replace them. Yeah, exactly. So that is kind of one, to my mind, very credible, trackable potential situation. Mm -hmm. The next break in the case that happened on the Wednesday after the disappearance complicates it to a great degree in a different direction. Okay. So on that Wednesday, canine units were brought in. And they traced Diamond and King's scent in the opposite direction from the McDonald's tip all the way to the end of Matthew Street to that park that you mentioned. Okay. So the dogs tracked south, not north. Mm -hmm. They tracked through this forested portion of Brunswick Park. Brunswick Park is a decent-sized city park. Um, There's, like, park stuff like a playground and picnic pavilions and things like that in the larger part of the park that's east of this little finger of it that kind of tucked under their neighborhood Mm -hmm. but the part that like tucks under their neighborhood that their street ended in is just heavily forested there's not like stuff to do in there i don't even think that there's trails i think it's just forest it's really interesting because you'll drive along there and you'll be like i'm in gary why is there a dead deer on the side of the road it's because of brunswick it's still indiana yeah (laughs) so you know they traced the scent to through that densely forested area on the other side of it to some railroad tracks. And that's where the dogs lost their scent. Okay. What's your sense of canine scent evidence? <sighs> that they're as good as their trainers. Mm. Um, my understanding is that they're, 
a somewhere between 60 to 80 percent accurate and that's why they always if one dog hits on something they always run one or two other dogs through it to see if they have the same hit mm-hmm. good so i was just really curious about the numbers right mm-hmm. like how accurate is this because it bothered me yeah. so much that it was two very disparate things and it mm-hmm. didn't seem all that realistic to me that they do to both. imagine them doing both right so I wanted yeah. to know kind of how accurate our scent dogs. And I went through quite a few articles. Uh, the one that I spent a lot of time with is Canine Olfaction, Physiology, Behavior, and Possibilities for Practical Applications by a slew of researchers. Is Dr. Panyard on there? She used to train police dogs. No. Oh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Panyard. I love her so much. <laughs> the names are all Polish. Um, yeah. Yeah. But let me just make sure I get the right thing. Uh, It was published in Animals Magazine on (laughs) August 11th, 2021. Okay. Um, And so one of the conclusions that they, so they, they looked at all of these different kind of scenarios, like how, how well do dogs track um, just like a human scent, like off of clothes, right? Like Mm -hmm, in this situation, mm -hmm. how well do they track uh, and find um, diseases? Mm-hmm. How well can they track and find uh, bodies? Um, and how well can they uh, perceive emotional distress? So they looked at these kind of four different brackets. Obviously, the part that's important to this case is the detection of biological sense um, that they're able to kind of pull apart from competing sense in their, mm-hmm. you know, in their environment and to track. So I just want to kind of read this section from the article. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Dogs are being used more often in the detection of biological scents, such as human odor, as they can isolate and recognize the odor of a specific person from amongst other persons, or even when the odor is mixed with other stronger scents. The police in some countries utilize dogs' olfactory abilities to identify criminals by matching scents found at the crime scene with the odor of the accused. Although this approach is controversial and its credibility is questioned in many studies, some police forces still regard this as one of the most valuable jobs a police dog can perform. Scientific results show that after appropriate training, dogs can match odors from different parts of the same human body. Moreover, dogs can trace a path of human odor through very busy city centers up to 48 hours after they've been created with an average accuracy of 77.5%. Yeah. I said 60 to 80. <laughs> yeah. That accuracy is, that's pretty damn good. That That's good. But that's also, again, that's why they, because they're, there's still a big gap there. So that's usually why they typically do multiple dogs. Mm-hmm. But there is also, and I read, you know, and mostly relates to your first comment that they're as good as their trainers, mm-hmm. that, um, that they do do that to kind of corroborate what the dogs do. But it can also be problematic if the dogs are kind of in that pack mode, right? Like, I'm going to do what you do because you're doing it, right? I thought that I... Well, I guess in some cases they do use pack dogs. I've typically seen them use like single dogs and then they Mm -hmm. do one dog. They run that one and then they do another dog. They run that one. There was a case. Fun story. I'm going to go on a tangent on this one. Here, I'm going to eat a peanut butter ball while you do that. Killer. Uh, There was a detective who had trained her police dog and she was known for having like a super duper duper high hit rate with her one dog that she had trained. And it turns out that she would take evidence and put it in her pocket and then drop it for the dog to hit on. Hmm. 
And so they had to like overturn and reinvestigate a bunch of her cases. And shady. It was super fucking shady. And when like she was interrogated about this, because eventually they're like, what the fuck? She was like, well, I would only do that on the cases where I knew that this was the perpetrator and I didn't want to lose them. Wow. I want to look up who that was because I remember hearing about that case and being like, way to fuck it up for everybody. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, but I did see that idea referred to several times that Mm -hmm. there have been a number of cases that have been overturned uh, because of the lack of reliability in canine scent tracking. Yeah, I think... Again, canine like scent tracking is another one of like, okay, this is going to lead us to where we need to get the evidence, but it's not the evidence itself. Exactly. It's a wonderful tool to use for narrowing down circumstances um, investigationally, but it's not necessarily something that is considered to be super robust in court. Yeah. 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 But, you know, for this search, it was taken pretty seriously. So they brought in the canines. And then after that, you know, they get to the, the scent goes to the railroad tracks, the dogs lose it there. So, you know, obviously they're looking around Brunswick Park. They're looking around, looking around, looking around. Nothing pops up. Interestingly, the Indiana Department of Homeland Security was brought in to aid in the search, particularly because of the difficult circumstances surrounding abandoned buildings in Gary, as well as the brush. So they were brought in briefly to help in the search. But unfortunately, by August 3rd, all searches were suspended until further notice due to a lack of resources. So that's less than 10 days of search. Ugh. Yeah. So it's like, and, and they, it's tough because in that nine days, they did, I think, exhaust all the resources they had. They had a lot of their units out there. They brought in the dogs. They brought in Homeland Security. Oh, wow. Yeah. They they tried, you know. Yeah. Um, but resources do run out. You run out of money to pay people overtime. You run out of... It's Gary. There's lots of other things happening as well, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you run out of the ability to, to keep giving huge amounts of resources to these physical searches. They also would cite that they called off the case for safety reasons as well that um, getting people in and out of those big buildings that are abandoned is a liability. I guess, whatever. The family continued their own unofficial search. Mm -hmm. They drove around the area. They drove to Hammond. They went door to door. Um, A couple of family members did go into, and still do to this day, several abandoned buildings in Gary looking for them, Mm -hmm. which... I think says a lot about the devotion of a family. Oh, yeah. If it's too dangerous for police. And the family's just like, we're going. We still have to do it. Yep. Yeah. On August 7th, LaShawn Walker, who um, remembers Diamond's mom, Mm -hmm. King's grandma, spoke to media about a tip obtained regarding a possible sighting of Diamond at a bus stop in Hammond. Okay. How this tip came to be is not entirely known. It's interesting to me that the tip was not in any place I could find about this tip attributed to coming through police. Mm-hmm. It was LaShawn getting the tip and speaking to media about the tip. So the tip okay. would posit that Diamond was at a bus stop in Hammond. 
where she was asking for money or for food. It was speculated that someone had given her 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. The tip included no reference to King. Okay. On September 6th, you might remember this, the dismembered body of an African-American toddler was found in Garfield Park Lagoon in Garfield Park in southwest Chicago. I remember this, yeah. Yeah. Um, for those of us in, in northwest Indiana following this case, I remember seeing that news pop up and just my stomach sinking mm -hmm. that it was King. Yeah. Garfield Park was about a 40-minute drive from the home in Gary. Mm -hmm. But if the August tip was true, then King and Diamond were separated at some point. Mm -hmm. So if we assume that the Hammond tip was true, that they were separated. Yeah. DNA was turned around very quickly, and the anonymous boy was not a match to Ariana Walker, who's King's mom. So was, it was not yeah. King. Yeah. I'm just shocked DNA was turned around quite so quickly on that case, only because yeah. it, it never is in Chicago. Yeah, well, it was only the DNA that tied the boy to Ariana Walker or not. Oh, uh, it, okay. It wasn't who he was. No, no. It oh. would take another several years to get him identified. That little boy, uh, it's just an aside, but he was identified as Kyrian Knox, and the man accused of his murder was acquitted, uh, acquitted relatively recently. I want to say it's 2021. Okay. And the case remains unsolved, although it seems, that seems like that acquittal was not totally fair, but. Now you got me on another. <laughs> that's an aside. That's an aside. Uh, that's just to say that, like, the emotional rise and fall of this case was pretty constant through the summer. And that when the when who we would later find out to be Kieran Cox, you know, uh, was found in that pond, that people did think that's how this ended. But it wasn't King. Mm -hmm. So at this point, police look to a different strategy and they start to look into registered sex offenders in the area of the home. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that ended up troubling Eugene especially was that within a mile of his home were 21 registered sex offenders. Yeah. Out of those 21, one person was identified at, briefly as a person of interest. He was found to not be involved, though. It was impossible for him to be involved. I'm not going to dox him. His name does not need to be trotted yeah, out yeah, yeah. Um, because he was not involved in this case. But that was kind of the last-ditch effort for police. That's where it all dries up. The family has remained very, very active in raising awareness for this case and looking for Diamond and King, um, LaShawn Walker actually spoke at a convention about missing persons mm -hmm. uh, in Chicago a couple years ago. Oh, wow. They always make sure that they have a news spot every year on July 25th. You will almost always see them featured on the news in Gary, just keeping the case as alive as possible mm -hmm. to find Diamond and King. Yeah. Whenever the family addresses Diamond, like on television, they always say, call your dad, because mm -hmm. that's the one phone number she had memorized. Um. Yeah. So at this point, we're going to pivot to theories, because that's all there is as far as the timeline of the actual events that we know of. Okay. So there are essentially five theories that mm -hmm. I identified. Okay. Um, and that you'll see kind of floating around when you look into other people's thoughts about this case. So theory one is abductions, mm -hmm. that both were abducted and, and possibly met with foul play um, due to an abduction. 
either from the home or from the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I personally, I still put a lot of credence in that McDonald's tip. To me, it's the one that makes the most sense. But we can kind of argue about that a little bit later. But that that walk to McDonald's would put them on a very um, heavily trafficked stretch of road. It's US 20. It's very busy. If if Mm -hmm. the highway is very crowded or there's an accident, you'll be rerouted. If you're, if you're me and you're driving to Chicago, you'll be rerouted <laughs> off of the highway onto this road. It's a very, very busy road. Yeah. So if somebody had bad intentions for mm-hmm. a woman and a child, this would be someplace that you'd be able to spot somebody to victimize. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's theory one. How I'm... I don't know. I think in terms of abduction, how easy of an abduction would that have been? Abducting a two-year-old is one thing because they're small and they're manageable and all of that. But abducting a 21-year-old woman that, well, she's short in stature. <clears throat> well, she's short in stature. She is larger and individuals with Prater Willie, there are some behavioral traits of impulsivity and defiance and that sort of thing. I don't know if that would have been that easy. No, I don't think so either. I think it would have been fairly difficult it would have been very difficult to manage abducting both yeah because if you individually i think either is is manageable yeah obviously a two-year-old is is very manageable to abduct an adult woman of any size manageable to abduct Mm -hmm. right yeah but if you can imagine a scenario where one person is trying to abduct both of them you Mm -hmm. can't take one without losing the other unless you're an extremely skilled abductor so agreed. agreed. In that case, you have to measure the odds of okay, like somebody who's that skilled and that ballsy traveling down the road at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. We mm-hmm. know that can happen. It has happened, yeah. but it does not seem to be the most plausible in my view. I agree. Yeah. So scenario two is that somewhere in their walk. In either direction, um, whether they went towards the park as the dogs tracked or towards the McDonald's where they were allegedly sighted, that at some point maybe they ventured into or sought shelter in an abandoned structure and that there mm-hmm. was an accident in that structure that mm-hmm. led to their deaths. That environmentally seems like a pretty sound theory to me. I think the... The obvious debunk of that theory is just like, well, many abandoned buildings were searched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How far could they have gotten? Again, it, because it wasn't that long of a time. Mm-hmm. We don't have a huge time gap. Yeah. The caveat to that, though, is it's still a lot of structures possible. And mm-hmm. many of them were searched, but not all of them were. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also possible i think that they could have made their way for example to the mcdonald's went down the wrong street somewhere that we wouldn't Mm -hmm. necessarily know to look down because it was just a random choice or maybe she thought it looked like matthew street and it wasn't or king made a run for Mm -hmm. it and she's chasing him down a random street or whatever that gary being gary and there being so many structures that are there to mess into Mm -hmm. and to get hurt in I do think like they did search a lot of places, but they did not search all of them. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So that's a theory that I think makes a lot more sense than abduction. Yeah. Yeah. Theory three is that it was that King was abducted. Mm -hmm. And that either in the execution of a, of a kidnapping of King that diamond either was killed or ran. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you'll see to kind of just make that theory, I think possible is just like, you know, King was two, he was little. I think if you were looking to do something bad, you could visually mm-hmm. see that diamond was walking with a limp that she, um, would have probably been somebody that would be easy to take a kid from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you were setting out to do ill will. Yeah. So that is a possibility. So then the the possibility then being that she was gotten rid of for interfering with that crime or that she ran and met some other fate, right? Mm-hmm. There have been a couple of kind of like, I didn't really include them in my timeline because they were very, very just unsubstantiated, but some potential sightings of her in Chicago. Um, to me, that did not seem nearly as plausible. It's just it's a it's a far distance for her to get to on her own. But unless she was taken there. Right. But again, like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Did. And this is more in terms of like, what would we be looking for today? Did Diamond have any other um, health conditions with Prater Willie? A lot of times we'll see diabetes, hypertension, blood pressure issues. Did she have any of that? So the sense I got was not yet, but that those things were on the radar. One thing, though, I will say was that um, it was repeatedly stated in media that she was dependent on medication that Mm -hmm. um, going off of it would severely impact her behaviors. So mostly psychiatric Mm -hmm. medication. Yeah. So she was on psychiatric medication. That's the inference we can make there. At the time, I think I saw one source as well that alluded to like hormone replacement therapy or like um, some kind of, you know, some medication for for sexual health, essentially. But I did not see anything. The family did not talk in the media about she's got diabetes. She's got hypertension. No. Only because I'm like, you know, if she was out there, she was missing, she was homeless or whatever at this point. What would her health be like? How long could she live without those things was the kind of the reason I was asking. Yeah. Like hormone treatment, yeah, definitely a common treatment, but something that you can live without. Mm-hmm. The psychiatric meds, though, I think is – that's really important to to put a finger on, though, right? Like yeah, if you don't have those meds that regulate your behaviors, um, you know, that perhaps – kind of work on that impulse control stuff. Um, I saw mm-hmm. a lot of literature about just kind of like just defiance behaviors, basically. A lot of emotional behavioral dysregulation, mm-hmm. impulse control. Yeah, just dysregulation in general. Yeah. yeah. So how long, and obviously this is like a general question, but like how long would you say after not taking medication like that would a person start to see symptoms break through? It would totally depend on what it is, like stimulant medications for attention, like whether it's Adderall or Ritalin Mm -hmm. or something like that, that would be the next day. Yeah. If it was something like Risperdone or 
other kind of mood stabilizers and things like that. It would probably be several days to a week or so, kind of. And again, this is just from what I have what I have read, the very few kind of cases I've worked on with this diagnosis, a lot of them are on things like Risperdal um, antipsychotics to kind of help with that behavior regulation and that sedation and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So conceivably, you could conjecture that like within a week, you'd see some some yeah. pretty distinctive behavior changes. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I think that could, that would have, I think make it's tragic because it would make her ability to like kind of seek care and shelter, you know, after a week or two, very probably very difficult, mm-hmm. right? And and again, we're also thinking about like intellectual and cognitive delays and kind of the level of insight and problem solving skills that she might have. What would that look like? I don't mm-hmm. know. But that would definitely impact her ability if she was missing, if she was homeless. Yeah. That would be really, really tough. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was a possibility that that really kind of weighed heavily, you know, because you think about and you hear about and you read about, you know, many, many, many cases of homelessness that are due to psychiatric illness, right? Mm-hmm. And a lack of resources and a lack of access to care, um, which she had plenty of access to care she had a family that you know loves her and takes care of her but if something did happen where the two were separated and she ran and she was trying to make it on her own it would be very difficult very fast has it been posited at all again kind of not knowing anything about her behavior that she would have ever been aggressive with king that was never posited. She, okay. everything that I read about the relationship between her and King was that she took great pride in it. Um, okay. Okay. And that it was like, also like a big source of pride for her behaviorally, like her ability okay. to like babysit and care for him and, and all that stuff was um, a, a big source of like her sense of independence. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cause I was thinking that could have been a possibility, but it doesn't sound like that was within her no in her personality or her history at no all. what i saw kind of brought up a couple of times or posited was um more about like how king liked to run and mm. kind of the concern that if he ran towards something interesting or just ran because he was playing chase um and he ran somewhere the diamond couldn't get to or she got tired or her leg hurt that mm-hmm. she wouldn't be able to follow so i saw that brought up several times as a possibility Oh, okay. Okay. Ooh, oh, God. Things run through my head that I don't yeah, like. Same. So, uh, and those things are probably my, the theories four and five. So uh, theory four is some kind of accident on the road um, on mm-hmm. fifth or any of the side streets kind of there in. And this is where like thinking about a place like Gary, I think can be really upsetting and scary to think about because mm-hmm. sometimes things do happen that may not get yeah. immediate attention. For example, I know somebody very well who witnessed uh, two children being struck by a vehicle and killed who laid in the street for two days. And that was in Detroit. But um, knowing that things do happen in places that are hidden. Yeah. Yeah. On side streets, 
in places that don't have a lot of infrastructure, don't have a lot of support, um, that thought did occur to me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's super plausible. I think that what happened, uh, what this friend of mine saw was a very rare instance, even in a place like Detroit or Gary. Mm-hmm. But it was a possibility that crossed my mind that there was some kind of a vehicle accident, a hit and run that perhaps did not get attended to right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is also very similar to my uh, theory five, which is an accident at the train tracks, yeah. given that that was where the dogs lost the scent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just considering how overgrown it was down there, all the brush, um, that potentially something could have happened to those train tracks and there wouldn't be as much evidence to find. So, yeah. Yeah. So those are the five theories that I kind of put together and saw posited in different places. What are you looking at? I'm looking at the train tracks. Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to think of how active they are, like as far as trains loading in or out, how many people are around there, and it's really hard to tell. Um, I know there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of cargo going through Indiana in general. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of train traffic out here. I mean, from what I can see... It doesn't look like the South Shore track. I don't think the South Shore track goes through there. I don't think it does. I think it goes around it. Goes, it. I'm pretty sure it goes around that. Yeah, I would assume that it's moderately to reasonably busy, but I don't know who the who the track like services basically. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm like looking at the track and I'm trying to think like it's a it's a decent sized park, but it's not huge. Mm. And I think that, like, a dedicated team could get it searched within, like, a day. Yeah. I mean, it's dense, but I think a good team could absolutely. I think, like, along these tracks, there are parts of this track um, that don't have crossings, um, Mm -hmm. that don't have crossing arms. And I do find that to be very troubling. Um, Mm -hmm. But basically, like, the... You would get through the brush of that park and hit the train track before you would hit a road. Yep. So if you are walking and not necessarily, you know, thinking about where you're at that much, a train could Mm -hmm. kind of come by surprise. Did they live on the side of Matthew closer to Fifth or closer to the park? Very close to Fifth. It's like two houses down. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm trying to think, like, you know, a two-year-old running out of the house into the park, like, doesn't seem that realistic. No, and that's why, to me, like, and, you know, we can kind of talk about, like, how you weigh these theories and how I weigh these theories, but Mm -hmm. I just could not make a lot of sense out of that being the path because, like, okay, like, going down Matthews going south, like, you're still in your neighborhood, but mm-hmm. very, very quickly, it is huge abandoned structures. It is brush. It is mm-hmm. like, it is not a pleasant walk. Yeah, I was really shocked by that as soon as I like Google Maps did and was looking at it. I was like, oof, mm-hmm. that is a rough spot. Yeah. So to me, that didn't, in my mind, track is like a lovely place to go for a walk, right? 
Yeah, whereas going right toward Fifth, which it sounds like is right where their house was, mm-hmm. like that's where, you know, there is a whole line of restaurants and churches yeah. and shops and that sort of thing. And that just like, that's what made me want to see like, can I debunk the dogs, basically? Like, mm-hmm. how seriously should we take the dogs versus how seriously should we take this tip at the McDonald's? Just kind of, log- you know, logicking in between the two, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it just, I don't know. I just felt like, and again, like, you know, she did have some impairments, Um so, you know, when I was thinking about Diamond, I was thinking a lot about, like, what would my little girl do? If we're thinking about the cognition of a five to seven-year-old, um, what would my little girl do? Um, your girl would never leave your hip. God, ain't that the <laughs> truth. Today she got <laughs> anyway. mad and she punched me in the titty and then screamed an apology. <laughs> she felt so bad. But... Um, oh, God, being five is all <laughs> Yeah. So, but I was thinking, like, you know, if she were to wander off, where would she go? She would mm-hmm. go in the direction of something familiar and fun. So mm-hmm. she, you know, like the the closest fun place that she would go to from our house would be either the park or the ice cream shop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So to my mind, like that would be a lot more likely than like a random foray down a random street without yeah. a destination. Well, and, also think, and also thinking about it from, yeah. Yeah, I don't see either of them going down toward the park. The only thing I can think of is, again, kind of painting scenarios and complete conjecture. King woke up and he wanted to go to the park. I don't know if they had ever gone to this park because there is like a kid. Yeah, there's a, it's a cute area. park. I bet you they have, but I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. say for sure, but I'd imagine. And King woke up and was bugging Diamond to take him to the park and Diamond, for whatever reason, agreed. And then something awful happened there. Or he ran away or he was abducted and, you know, and something happened to Diamond. Either she got scared or she got hurt or whatever, you know. I mean, the thing about that scenario, too, even though, is that, like, you know, if you were, if he was to wake up and say, I want to go to the park and she agreed to take him the walk through the brush would not be logically how you would do it so like what you could do is you'd go down matthew street you'd either dip a little bit north and take an alley and then take that to clark street down or you could go about a block south to sixth avenue and take that to clark street clark street's going to take you right down to essentially the entrance of that park where you're Mm going to see all the fun stuff you're going to see the tennis courts you're going to see the pavilions all that stuff yeah, because going straight down Matthew Street, you're just going to walk by a lot of, like, old houses. You might go by some neighbors and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but... But you could not get to any of the fun part of the park from there. You would be hitting, like, some pretty densely forested area. So I just have a hard time believing, like, like if the destination was the park, you're not going to look at all that brush and say, yeah, let's do that. It also seems like, though, Diamond was pretty well, like, taught and pretty disciplined about not taking him places without talking to their grandma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in Hammond, she did take him for little walks. But, you know, they did have this neighborhood where they felt, you know, a lot safer about doing that. Mm, You know? So, I don't know. Maybe. Again, it's one of those things. Did she have, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. 
So what do you think? I think that for whatever reason, they left the house together. Mm-hmm. And then something terrible happened. I Probably the target was king. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't... If there's any speculation that Diamond did anything to him intentionally, I don't think that that makes much sense. But, And it doesn't sound like she has a history of any aggression toward him or toward other people, mm-hmm. so it doesn't sound like that had happened. Um, I feel like there was some abduction, something that happened when they left the house during that nap. Yeah. <sighs> and that sucks. It does. I... I tend to look more in the direction of an accident related to the area. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that that tracks a bit more logically to me mm-hmm. um, than considering all of the things that have to conspire for an abduction mm-hmm. to take place in that area. Um, yeah. To my mind, just like looking at that area and looking at those buildings and, you know, even if she had made her way to Hammond, um, or if something happened to King that was accidental and she made her way to Hammond, um, mm-hmm. just that there's there's a lot of places available here for an accident to occur. Yeah, yeah. I It feels very much to me like there was either an accident or one was targeted and the other one died in an accident mm-hmm. related to the abduction. Yeah. But... <sighs> yeah it's it's a tough it's tough this one's a tough case because this is one of those ones where like you see this family that just aches for this and Mm -hmm. you want to see it solved so badly um and you want to see a a happy ending but you also just want to see an ending and that's the impression i get from the family as well when they talk to the media that um Mm -hmm. that we just want to know what happened we just yeah. want to know what happened. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, there's a news article from just this year mm-hmm. about them just pleading for help. Yeah. And, you know, again, like what, what the other thing I always think about is just like thinking about places like Gary and like Detroit, just this mentality that happens sometimes that like you just mind your own business. You, you go about your day. You say, that ain't my problem. And you keep moving, mm-hmm. you know. So even if you do see something sketchy, you do see something terrible, there is this, I think, atmosphere, this environment of that's not really my problem. That's not really my concern. I'm not going to get involved. It is not safe for me to get involved. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. in places and in cases like this, that can be a huge impediment to getting the tips that you need. Yeah. 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 And even you said you had kind of talked about just like being in Detroit. It's like, you know, you just mind your own business and you'll be fine. And sometimes that mentality goes to a level of being detrimental. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And if you stop paying attention to your surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to end. I I want to put out there like a full description of both. Um, Mm -hmm. So King Rajan Walker has been missing since 7-25-2015. He would now today be nine years old. Um, he is considered to be endangered missing. He is, his sex is male. His race is black. His date of birth is 5-11, 2013. At the time of his disappearance, he was three feet tall and 34 pounds. Um, the last clothing he was seen in was a blue t-shirt, red shorts, and white sneakers. His distinguishing characteristics 
read as African-American male, black hair, brown eyes, King's hair was styled in dreadlocks at the time of his disappearance. There are age-progressed photos available from NECMEC, we'll put those on the socials, um, that show mm-hmm. King um, at age six, and again, I believe there's one at age eight. Diamond Daisy Bobby Monet Bynum is uh, described as uh, at age of disappearance, was 21. Her height is four foot eight. Her last known weight was 238 pounds. Her hair is black. Her eyes are brown. She's an African-American female. Uh, Distinguishing characteristics read as follows. Diamond's physical condition causes her to walk with a limp due to a bowed leg, and she will often walk with one arm in a bent position. Diamond has a very obvious dental appearance with misaligned teeth. If you have any information on this case, please contact the um, Gary Police Department at 219-881-1214. They are still actively soliciting and looking for people to give information. This is not something that is considered to be um, a quote-unquote cold case in Gary. It is something that does still have, albeit a very scant team, a team, there are people assigned to this case. Um, so any information is, is useful, is helpful. I saw another, um, I think it was a, um, a YouTube video I saw where somebody also had mentioned hoping that somebody would come forward as um, like an expert in searching those types of places that could lend mm-hmm. aid. So, you know, if there are, by some grace of God, anyone listening that is in any way an expert in searching complex urban areas, man, uh, make yourself useful and go talk to the Gary PD. Please, please do. Yeah. So that's our case this week. I just, um, I want to make sure that we're part of the people keeping this case at attention. Mm Mm-hmm. I want the Bynum family to know that there are people that care about this case, that want to see Diamond and King home, that want to know what happened, that care about what happened, um, that are willing to, you know, call the Gary PD and ask what's going on, that there are people that care about (laughs) what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Just give the family some answers. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're not going to be easy ones, but they'll be answers. Exactly. <sighs> that was rough. Yeah. So with that heavy sigh. Why you got to be like that? I know. I mean, I have been thinking, God, my head is so fucked since I went to Delphi. I've just been like, I've been so fucked up. But yeah. this one just like, it really got to me. It gets to me so much. As a local case, like it just, it got to me when it happened. It still gets to me. It's just one of these things that, like, no- nothing should have happened that day. Yeah. Nobody yeah. purposefully, you know, put themselves in harm's way. Like, whatever happened that day was, at its root, accidental, right? Like, on on the part of Diamond and King, it was accidental. Yeah. yeah. Whether they met with somebody with ill intent or not. Um, and it just is one of those things where, like... You just see it and you see the facts, you see the timeline, you think like this should not have fucking happened, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's also so hard because these are the folks that are like obviously really vulnerable, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I I just, Uh... I really, really hope that there's 
a conclusion that there are answers that this family can have, you know? Yeah. I think, I feel like the answers are going to be very local too. Mm -hmm. I think so too. I get the sense it'll be one of those things where when news does break of a conclusion or some findings, it's going to be heartbreakingly local. Yeah. And then there's going to be more frustration. But yeah, that's my sense. That is my sense. Oh, geez. Yep. Okay. Yep. What do you got for us? Ah, uh, so for next week, um, we're actually going to be doing another super local case. We're going to be talking about um, the uh, murders of three young girls in the southern Chicagoland area in kind of some similarly situated areas of Chicago and suburban Chicago. Mm. The case took place actually before this one, but the sentencing just happened in October of this year. So we're going to talk about a little bit what's going on in Chicago, (laughs) what's going on to (laughs) our young girls in Chicago. Um, and what the police are doing about it and what the justice system looks like in Chicago. So, <laughs> yes, exactly that. Uh, get ready for a lot of feels. I just gave the get camera the finger a... while eating a peanut butter ball for context. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, basically my vibes right now. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about kind of the justice system and the jailing system in Chicago and how much that hurts people. Yes, <laughs> So if, um, I've been really, really digging that we've been doing these super local cases. I got more. Like kind of smaller. Yeah. yeah. I got more. I was going to do the Skeleton Boys next, but I um, just got, just felt the need to do something else. So, yeah. <laughs> Understandable. Anyway, friends, um, look, like we always want you to you know, hang out with us on the socials and talk to us and follow us at MedWretched Everywhere and email us and give us suggestions and things like that. It is also extremely important that you share information about these cases. Mm-hmm. So please do. Please yeah, do. If you don't share us with your friends, like whatever, but share the missing posters for people like this, mm-hmm. you know, um, you never, you just never know. You yeah. really never know. Share the Share the posters, share the information. When these families have events, um, go to them, share them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rather you do that than give us five stars. But yeah, I guess you just, you never know how useful you can be. You yeah. Know? So, and if nothing else, like it's important for families to know that other people out there care and are willing exactly. to like take the time to just share something as simple as a poster. So, yeah. And these are never going to be the cases that go hyper-national or that, like, get Netflix documentaries and whatnot. But there's just as important. Exactly. Exactly. So on that note, take action, people. Fuck yeah. yeah. That's our charge today. That's our charge. That's your Christmas present. That's your Hanukkah present. That's your whatever. Yeah. That's your New Year's resolution. Yes, it's a New Year's resolution. I like that. I like that. Yeah, so on that note, I think we'll close, my friends. So, yes, pay attention to us, but more importantly, pay attention to these cases. Yay. Yay. All right. Also, be nice. And eat cheese. And we love you. We love you. We sure do.
Have a merry holiday. Indeed. And if you get an Alonica, enjoy it. Send it to me. Pour one out for me. (laughs) (laughs) Pour one out for me, please. Yes. And Gary is at the tip. <laughs> it, but it's flaccid. Like, it's the tip flaccid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> obviously, we'll see this, if is I not a, <laughs> this is not a family show. <laughs> anyway. I'll cut that and put it at the end. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that.